electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. starts right now live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Pete Najarian, Tim Seymour, Karen Feiderman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, Bitcoin getting slammed after another hack of a major crypto exchange and top crypto baller says the bottom isn't in yet. He will tell us how low it can go. Plus, consumer stocks on fire, but the chartmaster says there is one name in the group that's just starting to heat up. He'll be here to break it down. But first, we start with the big story of the day. President Trump and Kim Jong-un just hours away from their historic meeting in Singapore. CNBC's Akiko Fujita joins us now from Seoul, South Korea. Akiko. Uh, good evening to, to you and good morning from Seoul. Uh, let's first establish why we are here. Yes, the summit is happening in Singapore, but we're just 35 miles away from the DMZ, that inter-Korea border that's been in place for more than six decades. No question, everybody here in Seoul will have their eyes on Singapore where that summit kicks off in just about four hours now. Uh, let's talk about what we are expecting in this summit uh, when the two leaders meet. We do know that President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un will be in the room one-on-one -on -one with just translators to begin the discussion. And in terms of what's on the table here, three specific issues to look out for. Number one, the idea of denuclearization, security guarantees for the North Korean leader, and then the steps that both sides need to take to get there. And on that very first point of denuclearization, there are still questions about how this will be defined by both sides. Will it be denuclearization of North Korea or the Korean Peninsula? And that's key here because North Koreans have in the past defined the idea of denuclearization on the Korean Peninsula as a drawdown of American troops that are based here. We're talking about 28,500 American troops that have been based here. Any idea of a drawdown on that front is likely to alarm American allies, not just South Korea, but also Japan there. Uh, in the past, we have heard the Trump administration say that's not going to be a point of contention uh, on the, in the summit, uh, although uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, didn't specifically clarify on that press briefing uh, yesterday. Uh, optics clearly will be a big part of this as well. And on that front, we saw what's a pretty remarkable scene coming out of Singapore last night. Uh, North North Korean leader Kim Jong-un taking a stroll around Singapore at nighttime uh, with the foreign minister of Singapore, even posing for a selfie. And keep in mind, this is a leader that had never stepped foot outside North Korea until several months ago, a, a brutal dictator that has uh, in the past executed his own uncle, uh, reportedly ordered the assassination of his own brother in Malaysia yesterday. So that gives you a sense of just the remarkable turnaround that we have seen of this leader over the last six uh, months, uh, just four hours to go, all eyes on Singapore now. Uh, but for now, I'll toss it back to you. All right, Akiko, thank you. Akiko Fujita in Seoul, South Korea for us. And while all this was happening, stocks managed to hold steady today as Wall Street is waiting with bated breath for the big summit following a whirlwind weekend for the president who clashed with G7 allies over trade before taking off to Singapore. So far, the market seemed to be shrugging off any potential global turmoil. But will stocks continue to stand strong? And is it a sign the economy is even better? 
than we think. Pete, we point this out a lot. Yep. Volatility, what, 12 and change? Yeah, we're still, in the 12s, still? and it doesn't seem like everybody would be as nervous as I think we are as we sit here looking at the markets and trying to weigh in on everything that's coming going on around us right but now. But are you nervous? I mean, I'm not. Right. I'm not either. I mean, I, I think, and the reason is over the last year and a half, what's happened? I mean, President Trump has had, you know, some ups and downs, but as, as we've gone through this thing, it seems like it always smooths out. And so I think that's part of the anticipation this time is it's going to work out somehow. It might not work out right now at the summit itself, but in the future, maybe they're laying the groundwork, the negotiation, the art of the deal, all of that. But the fact that volatility is in the low 12s, like you said, Mel, that says a lot. That speaks volumes for what people right now and huge funds are thinking about the market itself. Uh, you know, I look at a market that's near, near 2,800 in the S&P. It's up uh, almost 8% from the April lows. Um, the VIX is where Pete talked about it. Uh, expectations right now in terms of both the Fed because of Italy, because of what's going on maybe around the world, that the Fed's going to be easier. I mean, that's the bigger news to me. I, I think we're at the top of the range. We're at uh, a level of complacency, a level of bullishness. Look at the bull bear indicators on a week that's got the ECB, the BOJ, the, 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 the Fed, Wednesday. You've got Theresa May tomorrow on Brexit. You've got CPI tomorrow. There's so much going on. Which, which of the events that were the tape bombs? I feel like for the Fed, the markets are largely expecting an interest rate hike that's with a, a, a path. Why is that? A, if, if people are anticipating that, how can that be a tape bomb? I'm sorry. I, to me, the tape bomb is possibly the Fed. Um, and I think it's ultimately a case where people have an expectation here where they're they're Want to get that? Definitely I doing listen, something. I, I, say, Obviously, it's I, I think there's call. a general relative <laughs> complacent about markets. I was just looking at the SPX, the, uh, you know, the implied move between now and Friday, given all those things that you just mentioned, is 1%. Okay, it's 1%. I mean, that speaks to a 12 VIX. So we're just kind of quantifying that. I think, you know, everything we're going to get this week is somewhat expected. If the president leaves Singapore and does what he does, did to Trudeau, then we got a problem. Okay, I don't think the markets are not going to like that sort of thing after the G7. Okay, if he does that with this But let's um, say he summit. leaves. But let's sort say friendly. Th then it's fantastic. Really it's a great yeah. stepping stone that we start with. Then we get back to what I think are the more important issues. And I think this was at the heart of the problems with the G7. It really is about trade. And I think one of the reasons why the rhetoric about trade with China was was damped down over the last month or so. It was leading up to this summit, right? We really needed this thing to go well. But look at how it's gone with our allies, just with Canada, with the uh, Europeans. And I expect there's going to be some fireworks with trade as it relates to China going forward. And don't forget, all the way back earlier in the year, where did he start this trade rhetoric? With South Korea, oddly enough. Remember that? I mean, threatening tariffs on South Korea. So the, 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 the thought that trade war is aft, that, that, that was like an early 2018 worry, to me is not. Isn't uh, this more that, that I, I think the market really is priced, and maybe we're saying the same thing, but the market is priced as if all these things don't really matter, when in fact, I don't think North Korea matters all that much, but I think that the central banks make the world go round. And I think everyone is assuming that you've got a benign Fed suddenly, when, when last meeting we thought that these guys were very animated. I actually think I don't like to trade around my positions, but to me, the VIX at 12, 13, with all of this stuff going on, yeah. seems very mispriced, right? I mean, we, there's so many potential outliers out there. And so to me, you know, it seems like a decent time to own protection for really not a lot of money. I know Pete watches the VIX extremely closely. I just think there's so many things up in the air. I agree with you on the Fed. I think. Way more likely than not. But it not, creates it the opportunity, to your point, Karen, that you can protect, right? You right. can protect cheap. I mean, going into last week, Mel, I was 40% cash. Now I'm back down. 40%. 40%. Now I'm back down to about 12. And the reason is I found opportunities out there. I still think there are names in the technology. I'll give you one. I bought some Juniper last week. I also bought Wynn. 
So, I mean, there are certain names that I think have still upside. But that also speaks mm -hmm. to the fact that you didn't think that those opportunities would exist going into this week. Right. That somehow we're in the clear going into I don't know if I'd use the word clear, but I think, but, but when you can buy a VIX at 12, essentially telling you that you can protect yourself to the downside at one of the lower ends of the measure that we're seeing right now, Boy, that's a great time to buy insurance. Yeah, I don't want to wait for the storm. I don't want to wait to, to, to find out something awful happens, as you were maybe I think, alluding listen, to. I, I think you're right. If you look at 2018, if you look at the U.S. stock market, what happened? We ramped into Q4 earnings, right, in January. And what happened after that? We flushed after that. You know, we flushed out of that. And then we had this scenario where we flushed right into the end of Q1. And what did we start doing in April when Q1 was over and then as we got into these Q1 earnings report, we started rallying. What are we up? Seven, seven and a half percent from the lows. And we're still down from the highs. And I think it goes back to the sense that, okay, there was a lot of stuff that was front end loaded with all the tax stuff. There was a lot of optimism about this global synchronized recovery. What we're seeing in 2018 that was a little different. Europe is a bit spotty. Our data is still good. The central bank stuff, who knows, right? We're going to get a whole heck of a lot of that but data this week. So what I'm saying is the trade stuff is really important. If you look at the way the U.S. stock market is traded, it has has traded off of this macro stuff, but it's done it in a cyclical way where when you get the good news, then they rally out of it. I just think it's much simpler than that. First of all, I mean, we're at all-time highs on the Russell. We're at all-time highs on the NASDAQ. We're very near highs in the S&P, and, and everyone's acting like actually none of this matters. Um, as in valuations don't matter, um, central banks don't matter, and, and I, I just, you know, I think we're at another one of these places where people are not looking at the reality of central banks So let me ask this liquidity. question before we move on. Would you protect your portfolio here, or would you lighten up positions? I think you, you absolutely protect, as these guys are saying. I mean, they, they, the market allows you that. Um, I think you don't necessarily chuck stuff out the window here. I'm just saying people that are gearing up for, you know, there's all kinds of euphemisms we can use or, or metaphors. Some are melt-ups, this and that. Um, I, you know, let's get through this week. I, I think people may feel very differently about the Fed. People have gone 180 in terms of how aggressive they think the Fed is going to be. And that may be right, but... I'm not so sure. All right. So despite global uncertainties, our next guest says we are heading back to all-time highs and just keep buying. Let's welcome back Keith Parker, head of U.S. equity strategy at UBS. Keith, great to have you back. Thank you for having me. Um, you take a look at the S&P 500 earnings estimates for the year, <laughs> and I guess you think that they're pretty firm. I mean, it feels like at this point in time maybe the risks are to the downside given the uncertainties in the market like trade. So we do have definitely a number of uncertainties this week, and as we said, we'll see how this week goes. In terms of earnings, we had an 8% beat in Q1 earnings. What did estimates do for Q2, 3, 4 for the rest of the year after those beats? Nothing. So in terms of sentiment, we didn't see those upgrades. So there was come no reflection in, the up for, in terms of the upside beat for the rest of the year. Correct. And so, so the, bar, the bar, yeah, so you have a cushion, the bar is lower. And I think to the point for starting out the year, we had interest rates that started out the year around 2.4% for the 10-year. We had a 70 basis point reset in terms of repricing, and that's been a headwind for the multiple, but we think the, the, the fundamental drivers are still very positive. And from a growth backdrop, we slowed in Q2, and we're reaccelerating in Q, or sorry, slowed in Q1, reaccelerating Q2 as we think rates are stabilizing here. So I think we'll see that when earnings start coming up in early July, but that move on the 10-year, that, that doesn't put a damper on anything at all? For us, it, we've had the re-rating and the multiple reflect that. I think additionally, the move in the Fed rate, 100 basis points of hikes roughly in the last year, has been a headwind for the consumer, but it's a mild headwind and half of what we'd experienced in the past cycles. And for us, the level of rates relative to the level of nominal GDP growth, where we're running close to 5%, 
we think is, is more important. So since um, the beginning of the year, I mean, the beginning of the year, I think there was a belief that there was a, some sort of global synchronized growth going on. And at this point in this year, I think that it is more believed that there are kinks in Europe, that the mm -hmm. growth is going to be slower than we had all expected. Does that impact or is that a concern of yours in terms of how, how we were looking at earnings for the year? I think for us, we're, we're still very comfortable with our earnings expectations. To your point, the rest of the world has seen a few headwinds to that narrative of synchronized growth. But I think from our perspective, when you have a near 2% fiscal stimulus, we saw some great consumer reporting headlines in terms of the, the retail backdrop is positive. When consumers in the U.S. get more money, they tend to buy other people's goods as well. And so that should be a positive for the rest of the world backdrop as well. So what do you do here? Do you stick with what's working? Do you stick with technology, for instance, which is up 13% this year? So we are a buyer of tech. We think the corporate spending backdrop, given such solid profit growth, gets reinvested in, into the tech sector. Uh, and we still like consumer discretionary as well. So the tactical view that the U.S. consumer is solid and we think there are opportunities in that sector that we're, we do see value. All right. Keith, great to have you with us. Thanks so much. Thank you. Keith Barker. All right, so what do you do? Well, I, I tell you what, I, I, I agree with Keith that I still think tech's going to be defensive and strong. Um, I think there's places to play here, and you know what I like. I like a lot of these reflation trades. I think commodities are poised for another move higher. I, I like the banks, which I think have been underappreciated in this environment because as the Fed hikes, I think they're going to continue to do well. Yeah, I would just mention that, you know, it seems like this is a universal thought that high growth tech has become very defensive. And, and, and you know, the higher it goes, um, the more expensive it gets. I think it was an easier argument when, you know, before this 30 percent ramp in Amazon or Facebook or wh whatever these names are, the more concentrated they get, the more universal people believe that, the more worried I get. And I just want to make one other point. We talked about it last week. Why aren't the banks participating? And why isn't the financial sector this year in 2018 participating? To me, that remains a big problem. And I just want to say this, you know, the other point about, yeah, we got front-end loaded with these tax cuts. I just think the one thing people did not expect in 2018 was the potential for some trepidation around trade wars, which could actually kind of head off, I think, some of these gains that we were expected to see in the consumer in 2018. I think the primary reason that the financials have lagged, and you and I were talking about this last week, is the fact they had such an incredible 2017, and they've basically been on a pause ever since, so it seems. We've had a little lift here, we've had a little sell-off there. But, know, but Fang had an incredible 2017, it's had an incredible 2018. Right. But, but, no, but, but Pete's point much is... Much bigger it, earnings, though, than, than, right. than financials. Right. But I know you're talking about how much Fang have, have uh, appreciated, but the earnings were blowout. I know, but every other sector that you guys expect here, to talk here's about, my, small cap, here, everyone's when, raging. Why, where are the banks? Here's what's raging, Dan. Um, financials have outperformed the S&P by 11% since the election. So Pete's talking about 2017 and 18 taken in their entirety. I mean, you have to look at this market. And you talk about this, too. There's been a lot of rotation. There's been fits and starts and different stuff. The other part about Fang is, or at least a lot of these big cap techs, the mega cap, they're not really tech companies, are they? In some cases, they're consumer staples brands, or they're, they're, they're definitely discretionary plays. I think it's another reason. It's a good point, but I think it's another reason why people look at those four or five names differently. I still don't think that Last we can word. call technology this defense. I hate the word because it doesn't make sense to me. But because they say idiosyncratic growth. What you I look at that? is this. You if you've got that? fundamentals and you've got growth and it's accelerating, that's I don't know how that's sense. defensive. So why wouldn't I want to own those names? I mean, I'm not in any of the names that I'm in, I'm not in Microsoft, I'm not in Apple, I'm not in any of the tech names that I'm in. Because I feel like, wow, this is a great place to hide. It's defensive. I like to be here. I'm there because I see the growth, and I think that's accelerating to the upside.
Coming up, airline stocks are soaring and one trader thinks the rally is just heating up. He will tell you the names that will take your portfolio higher. Plus, a Bitcoin bust, the crypto universe facing a nightmare this weekend. And the worst isn't over yet, at least according to one top Bitcoin watcher. He will join us. And later, consumer stocks have been on a tear. And there is one name the chartmaster says is about to break out. Carter Worth will be here to break it all down. We are live from New York City's Times Square. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Airlines soaring today and topping the tape. All the major airlines getting a boost after Barron said that Southwest's recent underperformance is a buying opportunity for investors. This after Southwest had a big engine issue resulting in a fatality back in April. Now, it has been a rough year for many of the airlines with names like American, Southwest, JetBlue, Spirit all down 15 percent or more in 2018. So time to buy, Tim. Well, and some of this started also Friday afternoon. United actually gave some, some operational updates, yeah. and their consolidated revenue came in at 6.7%, which was better than expected. Again, their capacity growth came in at 42 It's all about capacity growth, I think. And, and by the way, Southwest has been one of the guys that people expected a terrible number from. Last week, they got an okay number, so that was mildly positive. Um, I think if you look at the airlines, one thing that I've said, and it's because I listen to some of the smarter guys on the street, um, these guys do have pricing power when fuel prices go up. I think it's a bit of a misperception. And one of the things that United said, is they're confident that they can raise prices dramatically. So I stay in the airlines. I think that's the one headache they still face. Yeah. Whether they can or, or not and pass it on, I think there, there's a possibility that they can. And we've seen it time and time yeah. again. But I, I think the reality is they've been on pause. And that's what bothers me. It's why right now I'm not in any of the airlines. I've loved them for a long time. But I just don't feel like we're in this grind in oil. And I feel like we're at the lower end of the grind from 65 to 72 I don't know. I think there's better places to be. Obviously, Buffett's there, and he's going to be a long-term guy holding many of these various names, but I'm even out of Southwest. I just can't uh, I can't stomach it right now. I think there's other places that are better. Aaron's been in. I'm in. It's been turbulent. Yeah. turbulent. Oh, nice. But, um, Good stuff. You know, I think when you look at this market that's up so much and you try to think, all right, where is their value? Where are the things that are <laughs> yeah. not expensive? I understand the cyclicality of this industry, but we've seen a lot of other industries considered cyclical whose multiples have ended up smoothing out quite a bit. Not so for the airlines yet. I think, you know, these multiples are cheap here. I'd want to stay long. Well, didn't they focus on love? And that's the one that, to me, doesn't have all these issues about the international routes and that sort of stuff. Right. And so, to me, when you think about their expected, like, double-digit earnings growth for the next couple of years, mid-single-digit sales growth trading where it is, it looks like that one seems like a cheap stock to me. Um, Delta and the United, you know, it seems like every time we have these kind of international headwinds, we have these big macro trends with oil, the dollar, th that seems to hurt those guys more. M&A, by the way, really quickly, I mean, this Time Warner, uh, Time Warner uh, AT&T AT deal, if that goes through, I think you could... You know, the, the thoughts around American Airlines, the thought about United possibly really? buying JetBlue. I, mean, I, I think it could be imputed upon the airline sector. JetBlue could still be a target. This well, in other words, my point is that if they're going to back off on all of their antitrust but, stuff, I think the airlines But that's off. a horizontal integration versus the AT&T well, Warner. Look, my, my point is simply, first of all, there was just there's talk about a uh, American and, and Buffett and all that. But then there's talk about United and JetBlue. Um, that doesn't happen. They don't even try that if, if, if antitrust is in the air. Coming up, gaming stocks going head-to-head -head at E3, one of the largest video game conferences of the year. To keep players coming back for more, we will tell you which stocks could pull out a win. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Great point. But if you missed the rally in consumer stocks, don't worry. The Chartmaster has three ways to help you catch the ride. Plus, the crypto universe is getting crushed. And a top Bitcoin watcher says the worst isn't over yet. 
He'll be here to explain how bad things could get. There's much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. The Bitcoin bust continues as the cryptocurrency plummets below $7,000 on reports of yet another major exchange hack. This time around, South Korea's coin rail getting hit, suggesting losses totaling as much as $40 million. Has Bitcoin become the Wild West? So we took a look back at a few of the biggest Bitcoin hacks over the past few years, dating back to the infamous 2011 Mt. Gox attack to the more recent coin check and coin rail hacks this year. And as the sell-off continues, last week's fund strats, uh, Robert Slimer said right here on Fast Money that Bitcoin was in the process of bottoming. But after crashing through what he's calling two key levels over the weekend, he now says, and he tweeted this, that the, the next key level to test will be 6450. 64.50. So have we not seen the Bitcoin bottom yet and how low can it go? Let's bring in Rand Nooner. He is a founder of OnChain Capital and the host of CNBC Africa's Crypto Trader. Rand, it's always great to have you back. Nice to be here. Um, how low do you think we're looking well, at? Well, we're looking at an analyst. I thought you said hello, us. but in fact, you said how low. <laughs> hello <laughs> and how low. <laughs> how low? Hello. Hello. How low? Uh, we're looking at about 62.50 as the next point. And if it goes under that, we're going to test 5,900. 5900 At what point do we start getting in the range of the cost of mining? At about $5,000, that's when the miners can look at this and go, is it actually worth keeping the machines on? So that really is a key level. At about $5,000, if we don't get a turn up, then we may see a, a very different game in mining. What do, you think is, what do you think is going on? Because, I mean, I think that, you know, when people hear exchange hacks... Some people may think, that's crazy. I thought Bitcoin was incorruptible, et cetera. It's not the blockchain that's getting hacked. It's the security of the exchanges, the sites, correct? And it's so, the exchanges and how yeah. they're storing their, right. their coins and what type of wallets they're storing their coins in and how much they're storing in each wallet, et cetera. But if you ask me, if you look at this exchange that got hacked this weekend, it's a small exchange. It's probably the 100th biggest exchange in the world. And it got hacked for $40 million. $40 million is a very small hack in the big scheme of things. Mm -hmm. And the last time I checked, when a bank got robbed, I didn't go and sell all my U.S. dollars. So I don't think that it's all about the exchange hack. I so think what, the exchange hack was coincidental. What's going on? First of all, technically, I think we're in a bear market and we're going down and we keep testing new lows. We tested 6,800. We tested 6,650 this time. So we're clearly in the downward bear pattern. And we can't break out of that downward bear pattern. So we can't break the 8,000 or 8,500 level. Uh, with convincing volume. If you look at Bitcoin's trading over the last few weeks, you've seen that the volume has been low and we've never been able to break upwards. We're always breaking downwards and breaking new lows and we go up and it's unconvincing and it's usually over weekends when there's very low volume and we're struggling to hold on. But, but Rand, when I think about the, the bank robber metaphor, I mean, that, that uh, bank, that's a one-off bank. I mean, this is a systemic concern for the sector. And then the, on the production side, you know, cost of production is a metaphor that works with a miner that's actually mining something. Um, I, I would argue that we're talking about a virtual currency and that there doesn't have to be demand. If you, start mi if you stop mining gold eventually or copper, eventually there's enough demand to pull that and hold that. I don't, you know, I'm not so sure. People even talk about Bitcoin as something that there's actual usage for. Let's break that down into the two discussions. The one is the exchange hack. Right. And exchange hacks are going to happen just as bank robberies are going to happen. And I'm making the comparison not because I think you can really com compare the two. But there are flaws in the Bitcoin infrastructure or the crypto infrastructure. But we're an, indus an industry in its infancy. We've just started. Mm -hmm. We're the internet before you had a real browser. And people are talking about a few exchange hacks. Those are to be expected from an industry that's got a market capitalization of $300 billion dollars. 
when we expect that one day this thing's going to have $20 trillion. We're in the beginning. We should zoom out and go, where are we in this whole cycle? And so we can expect these type of hacks. In terms of the cost of mining, that's a whole philosophical debate that we can sit here and have as to whether there is a demand or whether we're still creating a demand for Bitcoin. My view is that Bitcoin is a digital gold and that very soon, very soon in a couple of years, there'll be more demand for Bitcoin than there'll be for, for, for gold. physical gold. I saw a Twitter post with a meme that said uh, $1.5 million worth of gold and it was this big pile of gold and $1.5 million worth of Bitcoin was one hash or one little address. And that, to me, makes perfect sense. Now, we know how the algorithm works in terms of mining, um, and we can have these discussions as to whether it's better or worse than gold, but we're still creating that demand. So, I mean, what would you, I mean, everybody has a different investment time frame, but let's, let's say you're in the trade and you're finally made whole at current levels. Would you say sell or would you say hodl? I would hodl because would I think hodl. we're going to get to and the bottom. And is there a circumstance under which you would say don't hodl and sell? At this point, it's really hard for me to see why people would let their Bitcoin go unless you really don't believe in the technology. If you came here and you didn't believe in the technology and you wanted to buy a Lambo based on this momentum that was happening in December, probably get out because the space can't accommodate you. But if you believe in the technology, if you believe in distributed ledger technology in the blockchain, in the effect that it's going to have to every single industry in the world, now's a great time to buy we may go lower. We so may. That it's always a good time to buy for the people who, who believe in the technology. It, it's not always a good time to buy. It depends. I what mean, a couple weeks ago, it could have been a good time to buy at 8,000. I'm just playing devil's advocate because that's a criticism that we get, and rightly so, on this show because it's an opportunity cost to put money into something and expect that to return something as opposed to using that same money to put in another investment that may appreciate more. So let me qualify my statement. Sure. Now is a great time to buy if you believe in the long term of blockchain. If, you look, if you're looking in the next three, four, five years in blockchain, now's a great time to buy. And the truth is, whether you buy it at 6,600 or 7,500, if you believe in blockchain right. and you understand the exponential difference that it's going to make to every single industry in the world, then six, seven or 8,000 doesn't make a difference. It's, it could go to 20, 30, 40, 50,000. Then no one cares whether you bought it at 5.5 or 6 or 6.2 or 6.3. If you're day trading or trading in the next two weeks, you may get some better opportunities to buy in. We're expecting 6250. We're expecting 5900 just after yeah. that. Okay. Great. Thank you, Ran. Thank ben you Nader, so much. A crypto trader, CMC Africa. What yeah, I, I think the most important thing to think about, like when to buy, is that it was trading at a thousand um, in the start of 2017. Yeah, it took out that whole, you know, you know, November, December sort of thing uh, in the first half of this year, and it doesn't seem to really want to rally. But I, I mean, we say this to our viewers about anything, whether it's Amazon stock. You wouldn't have a disproportionate position of Amazon in your portfolio, even though it's one of the best but stories. You can't the last 20 years, and probably the next 20 years. And so, at the end of the day, if you think about you're going to have a few of these different currencies. It's going to be a small percentage of your investable assets. And I agree, if that's the way you think about it, you shouldn't care whether it's 6,600, 5,500, or 4,500. All right, still ahead. Uh, consumer discretionary stocks, they've been on fire, hitting a new all-time high today. But if you miss the move, fear not, because the chart master has one name you can still buy right now. Plus, Electronic Arts soaring to a new high as the biggest gaming conference of the year kicks off in Los Angeles. Will it emerge as a big winner? We've got all the details. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. The consumer discretionary sector is on fire, outperforming the S&P as a number of stocks in the group hit fresh record highs. Bob Pisani is at the New York Stock Exchange with all the details. Hey, Bob. 
Consumer discretionary includes clothes, appliances, retailers, even home builders. The S&P 500 consumer discretionary sector is at an historic high today. In fact, it's the only sector hitting a new high today, thanks to big moves up in the last month in several critical subsectors. First, retail stocks have exploded in the last month as the earnings commentary was just outstanding. Traffic was strong, the inventories were low. In the last four weeks, Macy's, Kohl's, and Tiffany were all up roughly 30%. That's not a typo, 30%. L Brands, TJX, and Gap up in the teens as well. Second, auto and automotive stocks like GM and Ford, Delphi, Goodyear have all rallied off of their February and March lows. Third, two big fang stocks are in the consumer discretionary sector, Netflix and Amazon, with Netflix up nearly 3%, Amazon up nearly 4% just this month. I know it doesn't sound like much, but their market capitalizations are so high that even modest single-digit moves dramatically drags up the sector. Finally, home-building stocks are also in this sector as well. They have been dragged down by concerns over higher rates, but the economy is so strong that even that group began rallying up 10 10% off the lows for the year that was hit just a month ago. So here's the bottom line. Consumer discretionary purchases are considered non-essential by definition by consumers, but desirable if their available income is sufficient to purchase them. The economy is strong enough to make a optional purchases like a car or appliances or more clothes attractive to a lot more people these days. And that's good news. Back to you, Melissa. All right. Thank you, Bob. Bob Bassani at the NYSE. Um, Karen, this yes. move has been extraordinary. I mean, you were remarking about it on the, on the conference call today. Uh, about the move in consumer discretionary stocks and retail. Right. I mean, it, it is kind of amazing because it's not like a lot of them are levered where you can see giant moves. Macy's would be one of them. But so many of them actually have huge cash balances. To have a rally this much is really quite extraordinary. So the mall, I guess, isn't dead. I don't think we've seen mall stocks rally, re, uh, mall REITs rally anywhere remotely as close. But with the consumer here, I mean, if you think about employment, right, wage pressure upward, it's a good time. Pete? Consumer strong. I mean, I think you go across the board whether you want to talk about Nike, uh, one of those names that we all, we all talk about all the time. But if you want to stay just right here in the United States itself or whatever, a name like Buckle that never comes up, but it's just one of these names. Love that, that stuff. That's great. great stuff. <laughs> it's a great company. But but take a look at the, the great reversal we get out of like a Lowe's or a Home Depot. And a Lowe's is more of a news story. But Home Depot... That was just a misinterpretation of the earnings. The stock sold off to 185. Here we are over $200 today. So I think the consumer strength is there. The numbers are there. The traffic numbers are there. And the growth is there. All right. Well, our next guest says one consumer stock is heating up while another is fizzling out. Chartmaster Carter Worth of Cornerstone Macro is at the plasma to break it all down. Hey, Carter. Hi. So there are plenty that are heating up and plenty that are breaking down, but I've got two. And let's maybe focus on those first, just to talk about all the things that Bob was referencing. But just to put it in context, if we know that our bogey is this, 4%, we have consumer discretionary sector up 12. Um, now, the equal weight is up less, but the important thing is, of course, even the equal weight is still beating the market, meaning this is being driven by Amazon, Netflix, and others. But the equal weight, when we net out the effect of those big ones, is still outperforming the market. So let's just look at two charts that relate to the sector, and then we can get to uh, Foot Locker and MGM. What I have here is a five-year chart, and it is the actual consumer discretionary sector, all 80-plus names. And what we know is it broke out about two and a half years ago to all-time highs. But the bottom is relative performance to the S&P. Actually, it hasn't made any progress 
uh, because the market is so weighted by high-flying tech names. But just now, we're starting to break out after sort of two plus years in the desert. That's an important development. Yes, it's in an uptrend making new highs, but it's now making new all-time relative highs uh, to the market. Now, just to put this in contrast, this is the same chart, but it's the equal weight. And what we know, of course, is the equal weight has been nothing but unhappiness. But here's the issue. This has just started to break above this line as well, meaning, yes, the equal weight is underperformed the market. It's just breaking out absolute, and it's starting to move above the relative downtrend line. So very developmental action. In terms of um, individual names, first we know that it's very dominated. Here are the top five stocks. I mean, just this speaks to the circumstance. I mean, the number one is bigger than the next four. And these five, of course, are basically half of the entire sector. So it's a, a top-heavy kind of thing. But anyway, let's, let's find one or two that maybe are still good to go. Foot Locker, I want to point out these gaps. All of this gapping, that's a gap down. That's an earnings miss 13 weeks later. That's a beat. That's a miss. And there's a beat, which is to say that there's something about the stock that the fundamental analyst community cannot cope with. Maybe the chartists can't cope with it either. But every time they report, it's a way outside of consensus. But let's draw some lines on this. I think what you've got here is a head and shoulders bottom. I think what you've got here is a break above a downtrend line. So this all projects to a gap fill basically back up to the 70 level. Close at 58, that's about a 20% gain from here. I think that's a good bet. On the other side, you've got something like this, a trend and then, of course, a break-in trend. That's fairly well-defined. Um, not good. Uh, I want to be a seller of MGM. And then just to put this in context, I mean, how sad. I mean, it's nowhere near its all-time highs, and it's starting to break down again. I think we're coming back down here to about 28. It closed at 31 and change. That's a 10% decline. I'm a seller of MGM. I'm a buyer of Foot Locker. He had me at how sad. Carter, come on over <laughs> to the desk. Ryan will bring the chair in. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. So, so we like to think, or people like to see Foot Locker and say that it's some sort of barometer for the things that it sells, like a Nike and, and all the other um, brands. Do the charts look as good as a Foot Locker? Well, so we've had these, uh, talk about idiosyncratic growth, it's idiosyncratic losers, right? Things like Chipotle and Under Armour and Foot Locker and, and uh, Urban Outfitters, all of which, most of which have come back to life, except for things like uh, a Bed Bath & Beyond on its way to zero. So um, that kind of gap, you know, off of an earnings beat, you typically get them in twos, and I would expect you get another one. Um, it's also got a huge short interest in the case of Foot Locker and a lot of people scrambling to get out of the way. All right, let me ask you, though, Foot Locker, which, which I like, but that chart, because of those giant gaps, I mean, it looks like it almost went off the page, and then they put the page back and started well, over at another point. level. The, I <laughs> mean, that doesn't, doesn't make it so first. much more difficult? Well, it, makes the, it speaks to, remember, what causes the gap is earnings release. Earnings release when markets are closed. Then they open the market, and it gaps up or gaps down, which means that there's something about the company that, let's say, 15, 20 analysts at big, bold bracket firms from Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Deutsche Bank, Chrysler, cannot cope with. Meaning, it's during they, the call. Very often during the call, the stock no, but the, moves. Yeah, but the gaps start at the open. I mean, there is no call at the open. Gaps up or gaps down post results, which is to say there's something about the operating business that for now, anyway, is not modelable. But what we do know is after being bombed out like that, the most recent gap was up, and I think you'll get another one. So more broadly, consumer discretionary X, Amazon, and Netflix are equal weighted, let's say, right? That's right. your measure. Equal weighted. Will it still outperform the S&P 500 from here? My hunch is yes. 
but I think what's important about those charts is that even with the weighting of, of Amazon and others, it's just making new relative highs, which is, you'd never guess that, right? You'd think, well, it's outperforming. It really hasn't outperformed for two, three years. Carter, thank Thanks, you. Thanks, guys. Carter Braxtonworth. Yeah. Well, as consumer discretionary goes neck and neck with tech to take the crown as best performing sector this year, which will come out on top, you can head over to CNBC.com to find out. Still ahead, the biggest gaming conference of the year kicking off this week and as the competition heats up between Microsoft, Electronic Arts, Take-Two, and the likes, we will tell you who the big winner will be. Plus, AT&T Time Warner hired today ahead of the big deal decision tomorrow afternoon. So why did one trader just make a million-dollar bet that AT&T could tank after the ruling? We've got the details right after this break. Welcome back to Fast Money, the largest video game conference of the year kicking off, and the competition is already heating up. Let's get to Julia Borson now in L.A. with the very latest. Hi, Julia. Melissa, Microsoft and Electronic Arts have already made their big E3 announcements. New games and subscription services are the trends. Microsoft showcased its commitment to content when it showed 52 games, 18 of which will be exclusive to the Xbox console, also announcing it's buying five game studios to bolster its content library. Microsoft's head of gaming, Phil Spencer, explaining the company's plan to grow its $10 a month Game Pass service, adding more games and features without raising the price. We have a long-term approach at Microsoft about where this subscription can grow, and we know that price point's very critical. As we think about multiple devices and reaching gamers on any device that they want to game on, we want to start with a subscription at a price that we really think can be mass market. As for the viral hit Fortnite from Epic Games, it can be played across mobile devices and consoles, and it's expected to launch on Nintendo Switch tomorrow. Spencer tells us that it's benefited Microsoft. Fortnite has been a huge success for Epic Games. Uh, it's great to see that. We love when big hit games do very well on our platforms. We're seeing that. We're continually working with Epic about how to make that game even bigger. They're doing a lot of eSport work this year. Uh, Xbox has always been a great place for multiplayer games, and Fortnite's a huge hit for us. Fortnite's success poses a threat to rival game maker Electronic Arts, which just announced a Battle Royale mode for Battlefield 5, enabling massive groups of players to play just at the same time, just like Fortnite's popular 100-person mode. Piper Jaffrey reiterating an overweight um, on EA shares on this news of new ways to play Battlefield. Electronic Arts also announcing a subscription service called EA Origin Access Premier for its PC games. It'll charge $15 a month for the service that starts this summer. This all comes as the video game industry looks to the Netflix subscription model to drive growth. Melissa, back over to you. All right, Julia, thanks so much. Julia Borson in Los Angeles. So if we make that parallel... And this is the Netflixization yeah. of the gaming world. Who are the winners? Who has, who has the upper hand since we know, you know how the Netflix situation is playing out right now? Well, I mean, first of all, I think you just got to go back to Electronic Arts and, and, and even to Activision because I think Battle Royale has been a, a halo effect for the whole industry. And I think these guys are still you know, getting more uh, younger demographics, getting, uh, getting women involved. I mean, in, in these shooter games, which they really haven't been involved in. So um, I, I think, by the way, the comps on these companies are really, really tough. Um, but I think that the growth has been, uh, I think, moderated in terms of conservative management guidance. So, I think that actually the PEs are not that expensive. Right? EA is not expensive. EA I mean, is not, not that expensive. Yeah. I mean, if they're even remotely close to being able to Netflixization, if that's that, your well, word. It's a very difficult it's word. It's a difficult word. It doesn't quite But we're trying it. And, we're, and it's working. It's, it's going, going on okay. But, I mean, okay. but using that same metaphor, Pete, would you want to own the content producers or the platform? I think the whole thing. 
Okay. I, yeah, and I, and I own Activision, one of the, you know, yeah. one of the names. So I, I, I just think that there's, there's so much growth there, I don't even think we fully comprehend it at this point. Switching gears, shares of AT&T getting a boost ahead of the ruling on its potential merger with Time Warner tomorrow. The options market implying even bigger moves for the telecom giants on the results. So, Dan, what'd you see? Yeah, very interestingly, so the judge is going to rule in this case tomorrow afternoon. The options market between now and Friday's close is, is uh, implying about a 4% move, which is actually, in either direction, is a big, big move uh, for AT&T in any given week. Um, Options volume was three times average daily volume today, which is also pretty hot. Um, so here's the thing. Today, shortly after the opening, when the stock was trading about 34 bucks, there was a buyer of 18,000. The June 22nd weekly, next week's expiration, 33 and a half puts, paying about 55 cents for those. Those break even um, on next Friday's close at 32.95. That's down about 3%. I suspect this is not an outright bearish bet. Someone making a um, you know a negative bet on the stock, probably more likely protecting an existing long position. All right. For more options action, check out the full show Friday at 5:30 p.m. Eastern Time. And let's get a look at our Kramer cam as we head to break. With Square and Twitter surging this year, Jim is doing a deep dive into Jack Dorsey's empire. Look at, look at him there. You can catch that and much more on Mad Money tonight at 6 p.m. Still ahead here on Fast, Steel Socks in the spotlight as trade tensions rise. Jackie D'Angelo spoke to the U.S. Steel CEO earlier today. Jackie. Hey, Melissa. Well, U.S. Steel is bringing one of its steel plants back online today. That's one step in its steel revival. The CEO telling me trade war. What trade war? We've got that story when Fast Money comes back. Welcome back to Fast Money. Steel stocks, steel stocks on the move the last month as trade test tensions escalate between the U.S. and some of its closest allies. CNBC's Jackie DeAngelis is in Granite City, Illinois, where she spoke to the U.S. Steel CEO earlier today. Hey, Jack. Hey there, Melissa. Well, that's right. Tensions may be high, but that's not stopping U.S. Steel. In fact, today, bringing one of its blast furnaces back online here, hiring old workers and new workers to share in the progress going forward. The company saying this is a small step forward in the steel revival for itself and also for the country. And the CEO telling me he's not worried one bit about a trade war. He actually said it can't get worse than it's already been. We've been in a trade war for 30 years, and I'd put it a little differently. We're actually now seeing our, our government stand up for the steel workers, and this is a really good thing for us. We'll have to see how this all plays out, but uh, we think this is a, a good first step, and maybe Canada and Mexico and others will come to the table. We've seen the South Koreans come to the table, and we actually end up not having tariffs, but also uh, putting in place some quotas. So this is a good first step. Now, the employees that we spoke to, very optimistic here. They say not only uh, does it help them personally to be working again, but there are major benefits for the community as well. They do realize that there are risks here. And, of course, one employee said, yeah, one of those risks is you could potentially see this plant shut down again if those tensions do get out of hand. But right now, they have confidence that the president is doing what he can to help them, to help the steel industry in this country. Melissa? All right, Jackie, thank you. Jackie DeAngelis in Granite City, Illinois. Um, you've been in steel. Where are you now? Yeah, I'm long U.S. Steel. Uh, and I've been trading the stock around, but I, I've largely been long it for, for nine months. And, uh, you know, 
flat rolled, hot rolled prices of steel are at record highs, folks. I mean, you know, let's be clear. This company is so cash generative. Second half EBITDA is probably going to be one and a half billion, which is going to look on a, obviously on an annual run rate. This stock is very, very cheap. And this is without these trade tariffs. The concern you have is do the trade tariffs either inspire different behavior by the companies or by their consumers, which has happened in the past. And that's why they've sold, they've sold off. Yeah, down 15% over the past three months. Yeah, you know, I, I, I've been in and out of U.S. Steel. Yeah. I've not been in it as much as Tim recently, actually. But ArcelorMittal, Cleveland Cliff, some of these various names out there, I've been in some of those names, Iron Ore as well. So, you know, one of the names that stands out for me, I know this isn't steel-related, but I'll tell you what, I still think when you look at FCX, I think it's way too cheap, given what's going on that side of the commodity world. Commodities. Great. Well, I'll just sort of add one point. I mean, that's a great piece. It's great that steel workers are going back to work. I think that the flip side of this, it's a very complicated case. What happens to auto workers, right? If we see, well, how much is steel up? Oh, because, 40%. because the costs are higher. Yeah, and I, and I think that's really the issue as we think about what this trade, you know, when you hear a CEO of a steel company say, we're glad that the president's standing well, up Ross like had this. these uh, cans. What's that? Yeah, with the cans. Right. Well, I'm just saying, it's cans. a very complicated case. It's just not that. Yeah. Plastic. Yeah. 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 Long inflation. All for plastic. Commodity yeah. driven yeah. and other All things. Plastic. All right. Up next, final trade. Time for the final trade. Pete. You know, some of the semiconductor stocks are actually moving up today. Micron's not one of them, but I think Micron's going up towards 70 soon. Huge buyers in there today. Giddy up. Tim Seymour. A lot of discussion about discretionary today. I like the XLY. I like the luxury part of discretionary even more. Take a look at that. I'm long a lot of money center banks. I want to be short the KRE against it. I think those regionals have outperformed way too much. Wow. Interesting. Dan? You know, ATT, if there's a lot of volatility, we're all just talking about it. How are you doing tonight? How are you feeling about your game tonight? I think it's pretty solid. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like KDS. I think ATT, if this thing gets hit on that ruling, I think it buys. Buy ATT. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. All right. All right. I'm Melissa Lee. Thanks so much for watching. See you back here tomorrow again at 5 for more Fast Money. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.